what I would like to do this morning is uh, talk to you for, for a little bit about some of the things that I've been studying and thinking about. And uh, I know we, we stop at 11 o'clock, so I, my plan would be to allow time for discussion, <clears throat> but um, I'll ramble on for a while. I want to begin with a poem of W.S. Merwin, which uh, I could really, I saw this poem and right away I could really relate to it. I, I don't know if you can, but I can relate to it. You spend so much of your time expecting to become someone else. <laughs> Always someone who will be different. Someone to whom a moment, whatever moment it may be, at last has come and who has been met and transformed into no longer being you and so has forgotten you. Meanwhile, in your life, you hardly notice the world around you, lights changing, sirens dying along the buildings, your eyes intent on a sight you do not see, yet, not yet there, as long as you are only yourself with whom, as you recall, you were never happy to be left alone for long. Once more, you spend so much of your time expecting to become someone else, always someone who will be different, someone to whom a moment, whatever moment it may be, at last has come and who has been met and transformed into no longer being you and so has forgotten you. Meanwhile in your life you hardly notice the world around you, lights changing, sirens dying along the buildings, your eyes intent on a sight you do not see yet, not yet there as long as you are only yourself, with whom as you recall you were never happy to be left alone for long. So I'm hearing quiet murmuring, <laughs> indicating that uh, you also can appreciate uh, a poem like this. You know, I don't know. Because someone sent it to me uh, over the internet, just like that, and I, did, I don't know the title. If there is a title, W.S. Merwin, W.S. Merwin, very well-known, wonderful poet who is a practitioner. Well, uh, the poem, I think, expresses the fact that it's actually uh, rather an impossible proposition, being a person. <laughs> and we're and we're so conditioned to thinking that somehow we can it's just that we're a little off you can make this work somehow 
more therapy. <laughs> Exercise more. <coughs> more meditation. Buddhism. Something that we can get it together and really kind of get this, snap this thing into, into <laughs> position so that we really can be the person that we all know that we someday will be. <laughs> the trouble is that, uh, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> that, that uh, one never actually arrives there. One never, ever gets to the place where you say, ah yes, finally, I've got all my ducks lined up and everything is just so. Maybe you could say that actually sometime, but then very quickly after that, <laughs> very quickly, there's a fender bender, or you lose your job, or the stock market tanks, or something happens very quickly after that to make you feel that because uh, it is basically uh, and fundamentally a shaky proposition, being a person. Mm -hmm. And we might as well uh, really kind of contemplate that and recognize that. It would save a lot of trouble, not to mention money. <laughs> <laughs> if, we, if we recognize that there are fundamental problems that cannot be uh, ameliorated in being a person. It's, it's just shaky. This was a, a beautiful uh, practice. I don't know if you could appreciate, uh, we didn't maybe have enough time to go into it, but this practice of listening to sound, just uh, not worrying about yourself, not even thinking about yourself and your problems and so forth, but letting that go and just being present, expanding into the space of sound and just listening deeply to sound, more and more still, more and more uh, deep with just sound. That's a really... Um, beautiful practice. And when you really go into that deeply, in a way, you go beyond the consciousness of being a person. And you just enter into awareness itself, which doesn't really have any persons in it. It's just awareness itself, which is actually what embraces our lives, the big space that out of which the person that we are emerges. So really the problem isn't getting that person lined up properly, as we, as we think. The problem is that we have forgotten the larger space of awareness in which we're held, whether we know it or not whether we think about it or not, whether we appreciate it or not, we actually are held in that uh, larger space. And, and I think that the purpose of our meditation practice is not to improve ourselves, but to return to the place where we actually 
came from and come from, moment after moment, as consciousness arises mysteriously. And if you sit and really get quiet and really just listen, you uh, can see that where is the sound coming from? Who is hearing the sound? Is there any hearing going on at all? These questions uh, are not answerable. And you find yourself giving yourself, without naming it or saying so, to the larger space that holds consciousness, holds your personhood, always in a, in a beautiful embrace. So even if you're totally a mess as a person, it's all right. <laughs> you know, when you, when you give yourself to that embrace, and when you have confidence in that, and begin to notice that that's really always there, and live as if it were so, then even if you're, you know, a complete mess as a person, it doesn't really matter that much, actually. <laughs> it doesn't, you know. The trouble with being a mess is that, you know, we are a mess, and then we make messes all around us. But r really, the reason why we do that is because uh, we're somehow expecting not to be a mess, or embarrassed about being a mess, or somehow uh, unhappy about it. That's the cause of the messes that we make in other people's lives. But when we really recognize uh, our being held, moment by moment, in every act of consciousness by this larger space, then even though we're a mess, it's, it doesn't matter that much. Because we don't really make messes around other people then. Because there's a certain kindness that comes from the fact of knowing we're all held in that same embrace. That whatever, wherever consciousness arises, it has that larger ineffable, almost, surround. So one naturally, you know, is kind and, and doesn't uh, need to be resisting and fighting all the time. Then it's okay if you're a mess. Okay, well, we're all a mess, you know, a little bit, or a lot. Who isn't? Who, who could escape as long as we're in this body and mind? Being a mess, being a person that fundamentally doesn't stand up. So, it's okay, we fall down. And, you know, when we fall down, the ground picks us up, time after time. So, uh, I've been studying, uh, this is all a kind of introduction to uh, what I've been studying lately, and I, I want to share with you just a little bit of this. I've been studying uh, a Buddhist sutra called the Shurangama Sutra, which is a very abstruse uh, Buddhist text, which it's hard to find. If you wanted, ever wanted to read it, it's almost impossible to find. But there is an eight-volume version uh, <laughs> that uh, you could somehow obscurely find. It was translated by uh, Master Hua he, he, and commented on it, translated and commented on many years ago. Uh, however, I, f I just found out the other day, in case you're interested, uh, that you can actually read it online. 
the whole the whole text is online. If you search under the way I found it is I searched under Google. The, the Google is a really good search engine. You all know about that. If you search under Google and you just type in Shurangama Sutra, which is spelled S-U-R-A-N G-A-M-A Sutra, two words. If you type that in, it will immediately the first item will be this Buddhist Text Translation Society translation of the Shurangama Sutra, which you could actually download and print if you wanted to. It's many hundreds of pages, of course, but you could print some little part of it if you wanted to just get a feeling for it. Anyway, I have no expectation that anybody here would be interested, but, uh, but uh, I'm interested because um, studying Z- the Zen literature uh, I discovered many references to the Shurangama Sutra and the, the profound teaching. The, the teaching of the Shurangama Sutra is, of course, about what I was saying a minute ago. It's about the recognition that we think that the end all and be all of what we are. Oops, did, did, are you all right? <laughs> we think that the end all and be all of what we are is, you know, this little thing from the feet to the head that started at a certain date that we call our birth date and ends at a certain date that we call our death date, that that's it. And this, of course, is why being a person is so shaky, because this is impossible. You know, how are we ever going to find peace given that? So the Shurangama Sutra is saying that's not really so. I mean, that, yeah, that is so. But that's only part of the story. And if that's the only piece of the story that we're aware of and that we're having faith in and that we're believing in, that we're trying to fix and shore up and so forth, it's hopeless, absolutely hopeless. The only answer is to recognize that there's a bigger space, but that bigger space isn't you know, before and after or elsewhere. That bigger space is right in the middle of every conscious moment of our lives. That, and, and the way that the sutra makes this point is by analyzing consciousness point by point and showing that our conventional view of who we are and how our conscious life takes place simply is wrong, doesn't hold up. So it's a text uh, of the mind-only schools, uh, mind-only school of Buddhism, the school of Buddhism that uh, emphasizes the nature of consciousness that really always is talking about the nature of consciousness in detail with the understanding that consciousness is not something inside of me or you but consciousness is identical in the end as the arguments and discussions go on consciousness we see is identical with being itself so the, what we call you know, mind and the division between mind and matter is actually a spurious, human-made division. A bigger container is consciousness, which includes what we call mind and matter. All phenomena is consciousness, all phenomena. Being and consciousness become somehow conflated. But even uh, consciousness is bigger than being because it includes also non-being, which of course is necessary for being. There's no being without non-being, right? Because otherwise, there's no time. Time means there's being and there's non-being, right? Because like this moment of our lives, it's gone. Where did it go? Can't get it back. It's dead. 
we just died to this moment of our lives. If that didn't happen, we would somehow hurtle through space and never have existed at all. Because that happens, we can say we exist. Because moment by moment, we also cease to exist. Right? So, uh, the Shurangama Sutra speaks about uh, consciousness in that way. And what it wants to tell us is, it's interesting, you know, it, the Shurangama Sutra refutes Buddhism. It starts by refute, refuting the conventional Buddhist view, which you all know about, that things are impermanent, and come up as a result of causes and conditions. This is the conventional normative Buddhist view. And the Shurangama Sutra says that's not right. It's not how reality is. It appears that way, definitely. It appears that way to the human apparatus. And, and, and yes, it's true that the Buddha taught that, but only in the beginning, because he knew that we weren't ready to hear the rest of it. <laughs> he wanted us to, he, he figured that we first of all had to understand impermanence before we could understand eternity, consciousness. So the word shurangama means, uh, literally translates as the ultimate durability of all phenomena. The ultimate durability of all phenomena. Not in the way we think, or the way we project phenomena to be durable, but in the true sense. So, what the Shurangama Sutra is saying is that we, we are somehow thinking that we have this imperfect mess that we're living, called our lives, which, as the poem says, later on, somehow, when we improve ourselves, we'll have a certain kind of happiness and wisdom. And the problem is that that's not at all correct, that this mess that we call our lives is already the ultimate durability of phenomena, and is already enlightenment itself. We just have to flip it around and understand it properly. We don't have to improve, acquire new wisdom, you know, take on new characteristics, become someone else. We just have to recognize what is, as it is. I've been uh, also uh, studying, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Martin Buber. I don't know if you, Martin Buber used to be popular when I was young. And now one never hears about Martin Buber. But actually recently I stumbled back into Martin Buber and I was astonished at how interesting and how apt his thought is. Uh, so I've been studying his um, work on uh, the ha uh, Hasidic movement in Judaism. And you have to distinguish between the actual Hasidic movement and Buber's version of the Hasidic <laughs> movement. <laughs> So I don't know about the Hasidic movement, but, uh, but Buber's version of the Hasidic movement is actually very profound and interesting. And, and, and it's, it's really the same thing as what I'm saying up here about the Shurangama Sutra. In fact, mystical traditions, East or West, really do make the same point about reality. That, that our efforts to improve, change, grow, develop, are fundamentally futile 
that what we need to do is let go and turn reality around and see that the world of the profane world is actually the world of absolute holiness. Mm -hmm. So, I just want to read you uh, a little, uh, very short introduction, part of the introduction from this little book of Buber's called The Way of Man. Pre-feminist title. <laughs> but, but it is called The Way of Man. Um, in most systems of belief, the believer considers that he or she can achieve a perfect relationship to God by renouncing the world of the senses and overcoming natural being. Not so the chassid. Certainly, cleaving unto God is to the chassid the highest aim of the human person. But to achieve it, she is not required to abandon the external and internal reality of earthly being, but to affirm it in its true God-oriented essence, and thus so to transform it so that it can be offered up to God. Chassidism is no pantheism. It teaches the absolute transcendence of God, but as combined with God's conditioned immanence. So there's an identity between the trans, the God's transcendence and God's absolute immanence here. The world is an irradiation of God. The world is like a beam, an emanation of God. But as it is endowed with an independence of existence and striving, it is apt, always and everywhere, to form a crust around itself. This is the famous Kabbalistic notion that all of reality is divine light, but because of our um, habit of running around looking for something that's already there to begin with, we build up little by little a kind of crust around this divine spark so it seems dim to us. And uh, the Buddhist sutras say exactly the same thing. One of my favorite lines in the Pali Canon is a sutra called the finger snap, which says, begins by saying, Oh, uh, bhikkhus, this mind is luminous, only it has been covered over with adventitious defilements from without. In other words, the nature of mind is light and brightness and enlightenment, that is the nature of mind. That is the nature of consciousness. But because of our running around constantly over many, many lifetimes, you know, of constantly looking to be someone else, find something else, find the perfect this or that, find, you know, what we need. Our economy is based on it, of course. Right? You can get this, and this will make a difference, and this will improve this. And so on. Because we've been doing this for so long, we've built up a kind of crust around it, hiding the light. So he says, um, forms a crust around itself. Thus, a divine spark lives in everything and being. But each spark is enclosed by an isolating shell. Only human beings can liberate it and rejoin it with the origin by holding holy converse with the thing 
which sometimes is an outward thing, but also can be an inward thing. Actually, it makes no difference, inside, outside, you know, it's really the same thing. Because we relate to ourselves as if we were outside of ourselves. We actually relate to ourselves as objects. So only by holding holy converse with whatever it is, a thought in the mind or a sound or another person, and using it in a holy manner, that is, so that the intention in doing so remains directed towards God's transcendence. Thus the divine immanence emerges from the exile of the shells. But also, in every human being, is a force divine. And in human beings, far more than other creatures, that force can pervert itself can be misused by humans. This happens if, instead of directing it toward its origin, humans allow it to run directionless and seize at everything that offers itself to it. Instead of hallowing passion, we make it evil. But here, too, a way to redemption is open. The person who, with the entire force of their being, turns around toward God, lifts at this point, at his point in the universe, the divine immanence out of its debasement which he has caused. The task of every human being, according to Hasidic teaching, is to affirm for God's sake the world and the person himself or herself, to affirm the task of every human being, according to Hasidism, and the same really is true fundamentally of Buddhism, the task of every human being is to affirm for God's sake, in other words, for the sake of the ultimate, not for my sake or your sake or humankind's sake, but for the sake of the ultimate, to affirm the world and oneself. And by this very means, to transform both. So I think uh, Buber says this very well. The Way of Man, uh, probably an old, out-of-print book, but uh, I find that you can get almost anything on, online if you are patient. So they probably can probably get this. It's a short, you see, a tiny little book. Tiny books are good, you know, you read them fast, you feel you got somewhere. <laughs> I read a book. Oh no. Yeah. So, uh, then, uh, so I'll tell you the uh, what I'll what I'll do for the rest of the, for the another little while here is I'll um, <coughs> tell you, set the scene for the sutra and tell you the beginning of it and why it is that the Buddha decided that he better teach this particular teaching. And then maybe I'll read one little passage from the sutra just to give you a flavor of it, and then that'll be uh, enough, and we can 
if there's anything to talk about, we can we can talk. So the sutra, uh, you know, all Buddha sutras, as you know, begin with the words, "Thus have I heard," uh, because uh, this is Ananda talking. Ananda is the uh, narrator of all the Buddhist sutras. Ananda was Buddha's cousin, who was uh, a, an amazing person, uh, if you believe what it says in the book. He was the Buddha's cousin and a very, very uh, attractive person. His main characteristic was he was attractive and also eager to learn and study. And he also had probably the greatest memory in the history of the human race. <laughs> so Ananda served as Buddha's attendant for many, many years and would go around with the Buddha every time he gave a talk. Ananda would listen carefully to the talk in his eagerness, and he would remember it word for word. Uh, so that, you know, of course, Buddha's talks were not taped or written down in any way. So after the Buddha's passing, uh, they thought, geez, you know, we better, I mean, the, the master is gone, we better, you know, preserve his words. Let's get Ananda to tell us, uh, recite all that the Buddha said, and we'll write it down. But the problem was that the club of people who um, were gathering together to do this, uh, the membership in the club, the sort of requirement was that you be enlightened. You couldn't join the club unless you were enlightened. And Ananda wasn't enlightened. So there's a famous sort of Zen story about this, about how they had to contrive to get Ananda enlightened so he could join the club, so he could tell <laughs> the sutras. Anyway, it's a very important fact uh, of Ananda's not being enlightened. It's a very crucial fact in all of Buddhism that the irony that, that the, the sutras are being all were memorized and spoken by the person who wasn't enlightened and sort of at the last minute had to sort of get enlightened so he could say all this. And Ananda's non-enlightenment figures into many uh, Buddhist stories because Ananda's sort of like the, the nice guy, the eager nice guy who has a lot of faith and devotion but isn't enlightened. And that figures prominently into, into the sutra as well. Anyway, thus have I heard is always Ananda talking and then he says, well, one time the Buddha was over here, and here was who was present, and, and this is what he said. That's how all the sutras begin. So in this case, uh, the Buddha was uh, teaching in a town called Shravasti, which was a capital city of the kingdom of a king by the name of Prasenajit. And uh, this, they say, that this capital city was a really wonderful capital city. It was beautiful. Um, there was wealth and um, culture and, and general state of happiness in the city. King Prasenajit was a good king and fortunate. So it's no accident that this particular teaching about mind in the way that I was speaking of it is given in such conditions. Because in a way it's actually a luxury to be able to contemplate and appreciate and try to understand uh, the nature of mind. When you don't have anything to eat, it's very difficult to contemplate uh, the nature of mind. So, 
uh, I bring this up because we're all in the same situation. We're living in Shravasti. Marin County is actually Shravasti. We have uh, marvelous circumstances in which to study the Dharma. And, and those conditions uh, bring with them this privilege of being able to have the leisure and the intelligence and the wherewithal to study the nature of mind, but also the responsibility goes with that. That one, one tries to penetrate into the nature of mind, not really. Ultimately, you see, it's impossible to really understand the nature of mind for one's own self, for one's own uh, benefit. In fact, it's only by transcending one's own benefit that you can understand the nature of mind. So that brings with it the responsibility to benefit others. So the truth is that we have that also, like the people in the sutra, we have that responsibility as well. Anyway, Buddha is about to teach the sutra, but the king comes along and says, uh, tomorrow is the anniversary of my uh, father's passing from this world, and every year I have an anniversary uh, a feast uh, in his honor, and I'm now inviting the Buddha and all of his retinue to please come and have a vegetarian feast in honor of my father, which they all do. And the Buddha is sitting, everybody's there except for one person who was not able to come because he was very far away, and this was Ananda. Ananda was far away in another city begging for his food at that moment while they're all having this great vegetarian feast. Ananda's going from house to house with his begging bowl. And he's very dutifully uh, thinking about the Buddha's instruction to uh, only uh, beg, to, to beg at every single house, not to discriminate between the wealthy houses and the poor houses. Because uh, the monks say, oh, I won't go to that poor house because they probably don't have very much and I don't want to bother them. Besides, whatever they have, it's not going to taste that good anyway. <laughs> so I'll go to this nice wealthy house where they surely will have enough for me, and plus it'll be really good. Buddha said, no, 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 that's not how you do it. You go to every single house indiscriminately. So Ananda was thinking of this instruction, and he, the next house he happened to come to was a house of prostitution. So he knocked on the door, and to the door came... Uh, a woman who is only identified in the sutra as Matungi's daughter. And Matungi's daughter, who was a prostitute, comes to the door. And remember, I told you that Ananda was extremely attractive. This is the main characteristic. Ananda is extremely attractive. And frequently in the, in the sutras, people are falling in love with Ananda. It happens all the time. And sure enough, this happens. Matungi's daughter takes one look at Ananda, his glowing... You know, monks are very attractive, you know, nice shaved heads, saffron robes, <laughs> wonderful, you know. So, kaboom, she, she uh, immediately falls in love with Ananda. And she is trying to seduce Ananda, but Ananda, having taken vows and so forth, you know, is not interested. So she runs to her mother while Ananda's standing at the door with his bowl and says to her mother, who happens to be, wouldn't you know it, a sorceress. <laughs> she says, uh, you've got to do something, Mom. I'm just head over heels in love with this monk at the front door, and he's absolutely uninterested, and I know you must have some kind of a spell that you can zap him with and make him fall in love with me. And she said, well, all right, 
And so, she, boom, she shoots a spell on Ananda, and instantaneously he falls in love with Matungi's daughter. And just as they're about to uh, take off their clothes, and Ananda's about to do this drastic thing of breaking the monastic vow, which is really a bad thing to do, Buddha is, at this moment, taking a mouthful of food. Of course, you know, Buddha's clairvoyant. The Buddha sees what's going on. And he says, ah, problem. <laughs> now also, uh, you have to understand that Buddha is not only clairvoyant, but also uh, easily uh, violates conventions of space-time, <laughs> which, you know, bounce off of him like raindrops would bounce off you and I. So he says to Manjushri, one of the bodhisattvas who's sitting there, Manjushri, what you have to do now, I'm afraid, is you're going to have to zap yourself over there to where Ananda is, and you're going to have to recite the Shurangama mantra, which is able to dispel all potions and spells, so that Ananda, you know, won't do this terrible karma of breaking his monastic vows. So Manjushri, in a twinkling, is there exactly at that moment, recites the Shurangama Sutra, the spell is broken, Ananda sort of realizes, oh my God, what am I doing here? And he goes back to the Buddha, saved, you know, the last moment. <laughs> so this is why the Buddha says, when he gets back, the Buddha says, uh, Ananda, uh, I can see that your uh, understanding of reality is lacking. Because if you really did understand reality as it actually is, and understand the nature of mind and experience and consciousness, this would never have happened to you. That spell would have just bounced right off you, and you would have been immune to it. The reason why you fell for that spell is because you really don't see reality as it is. So therefore, I'm now going to teach you the eight volumes of the Shurangama Sutra so that you can straighten that out. So that's the occasion uh, for the teaching of the Sutra, and I thought that you should know that. Now, uh, I want to, it's a funny story, but actually uh, it has a deep point. And this is really crucial. Now you hear the story, and of course I apologize uh, to all the women in the room for the, this typical, often repeated and universally repeated in monastic-inspired literature all over the world, this sort of typical misogynistic thing about how this temptress is coming along causing these poor defenseless uh, monks to break their vows. This is, of course, general throughout all uh, religious literature that is based on monastic practice, because it's obvious, right? Probably most of you are therapists, so you understand how, <laughs> how uh, we project onto others that which we most fear in ourselves. So, you know, all over the world, monks uh, trying desperately to deny their, their sexual desire uh, see these tempting women all over the place, they're the ones who are getting us to, you know, have all these feelings, you know, which, which we would otherwise not have, we're such good boys. So it's a common trope in uh, religious literature about this tempting woman. So that's not the point, you know, we have to sort of like forgive them for that. They're trying their best and so forth, but what, they didn't know any better. So we forgive them, it's all right. But, but let's go beyond that surface to the real point, it's not that, the point here is not that 
women are bad, sexuality is bad. The point is the spell. The spell. When you're in this, under the spell of the physical world, under the spell of desire, there's, there's nothing wrong with desire, you see, is the deeper point. Desire is natural. Desire is life. Literally, that's what life is, right? Is the desire to go on. Nothing wrong with that. When we're under the spell of that, when we're twisted around, turned around by that desire, <coughs> then we're under a spell which causes, as in Ananda's case, uh, conduct that is, will lead to suffering. So the, the issue is not that we should eliminate uh, women, eliminate sexuality, eliminate desire, eliminate the world, but that we should break the spell and enter the world as it actually is. That's why the Srirangama Sutra then is taught, so that Ananda can recognize and understand that. And furthermore, just to show you that it's clear that uh, Matangi's daughter is not a bad egg, the end of the story with her is that, of course, as you could imagine, think about it, when Buddha flees and goes to, when uh, Ananda flees and goes back to the Buddha, she's following him, pursuing him, right? And she gets there and it's, she's looking for Ananda, and instead of Ananda, the door opens and it's the Buddha. He's standing there in front of the Buddha saying, where is Ananda? You know, I'm after, I'm madly in love with Ananda, where is he? And then she and the Buddha have a little conversation. And of course, she instantaneously recognizes that she herself is under a spell. The spell is broken. She becomes enlightened much more quickly than Ananda, actually. <laughs> she, becomes, uh, she becomes enlightened, you know, on about the fourth, at the end of the fourth volume or so. Ananda has to wait until the very end of the sutra. And, and in the commentary it says that she becomes enlightened so quickly exactly because she loved Ananda so much. In other words, the force of that love, once it was turned in a wholesome way, and the spell of desire was broken, and true desire from the heart could arise, she instantaneously didn't need much. So the force of her love actually turned in the right direction, immediately led to her awakening. So that shows you that the sutra is not demonizing her, even though it's, like I say, it's a regrettable sort of trope. Anyway, um, I'll just read you one part. This is one of my favorite parts. Uh, and I think uh, you'll appreciate this part. I hope you will anyway. This is, uh, the, the, the sutra is uh, a very intense uh, Socratic dialogue, a series of intense Socratic dialogues between the Buddha and various people to analyze the nature of consciousness, mind, and perception. How does perception happen? How does mind, what is mind actually? And there's a long section where, you know, Ananda says, well, you know, uh, I see with my eyes and I experience it with my mind, and the Buddha points out that you, you, you can't say that mind is located anywhere. It's not inside the body, it's not outside the body, it's not in between. You also can't say that the eyes are what see, because if you, if you put a corpse in front of a, a television set, they won't see the program, even though they have good eyes, because there's no consciousness. 
So the whole thing you know, becomes very problematic and hard to understand. What is hearing? What is seeing? What is mind? It's not what we think it is. We have various conventional views that are absolutely wrong. And so there's all these dialogues one after the other. So here's one a dialogue about the nature of seeing that takes place with the king and between the king and the Buddha. So I'll read you this and then I'll, that'll be the end. Uh, then King uh, Prasanajit rose and said to the Buddha, uh, well, more or less he said, um, I see that I'm getting old and I'm confused about what happens at the end of my life when I die. And I had some people told me some things that when I die, like I was finished completely. And I'm confused about that. Would you please tell me? So Buddha said, okay, now king, I ask you, as it is now, is your physical body like a Vajra, indestructible and living forever, or does it change and go bad? world-honored one, the king replies, this body of mine will keep changing until it eventually becomes extinct. The Buddha said, great king, you have not yet become extinct. How do you know you will become extinct? True, you know. How do you really know? So, he says, world-honored one, Buddhist, uh, polite title, World Honored One. Although my impermanent, changing, and decaying body has not yet become extinct, I observe it now, and every passing thought fades away. Each new one fails to remain, but gradually perishes, like fire turning to ashes. This perishing, without cease, convinces me that this body will eventually become completely extinct. The Buddha said, right. Now, great king, at your present age, you are already old and declining. How do your appearance and complexion compare to when you were a youth? World-honored one, in the past, when I was young, my skin was moist and shining. When I reached the prime of life, my blood and breath were full. But now, in my declining years, as I race into old age, and by the way, this is the only way that one gets into old age. One doesn't get there step by step or slowly. It's a race. You, you all of a sudden, you say, what, what happened there? You know? and, then, and then it's old age. You, know? you raced into it. You didn't even know how that happened. So as I race into old age, my form is withered and wizened, and my spirit dull. My hair is white, and my face is in wrinkles, and I haven't much time remaining. How can I be compared to how I was when I was full of life? The Buddha said, Great King, your, your appearance should not decline so suddenly. The King said, World-honored one, the change has been a hidden transformation, of which I honestly have not been aware. Just as we, you know, we look in the mirror and we haven't changed. We're the same as we always were, right? 
you know, you look in the mirror and it's the same, you know, you're still whatever your ideal age is, 16, 22, whatever. I haven't been aware. I have come to this gradually through the passing of winters and summers. How did it happen? In my 20s, I was still young, but my features had aged since the time I was 10. My 30s were a further decline from my 20s. I remember, you know, being 30, thinking, oh boy, 30. 40, 40, oh boy, 40. Now 50 seems pretty young. That's what he says. My 30s were a further decline from my 20s. And now, at 62, this is how old he is, very old, 62, I look back on my 50s as hale and hearty. World-honored one, I am contemplating these hidden transformations. Although the changes wrought by this process of dying are evident through the decades, I might consider them further in finer detail. These changes do not occur just in periods of 12 years. They are actually, there are actually changes year by year. Not only are there yearly changes, there are also monthly transformations. Nor does it stop at monthly transformations. There are also differences day by day. Examining them closely, I find that moment after moment, thought after thought, these changes never stop. And so I know my body will keep changing until it is extinct. He's thought about this. The Buddha told the great king, by watching the ceaseless changes of these transformations, you awaken and know of your extinction. But, but, do you also know that at the time of extinction, there is something in your body which does not become extinct. And the king, you know, fervently puts his palms together and says, No, I don't know that at all. Please explain. And the Buddha says, Now I will show you the nature which is not produced and not extinguished. Now I will show you the nature which is not produced and not extinguished. Great king, how old were you when you saw the waters of the Ganges? The Ganges, of course, being not just a river, but a holy river, you know, the mother of all being in India. So it's a memorable occasion when one first sees it. The king said, when I was three years old, my compassionate mother led me to visit the goddess Jiva. We passed a river, and at the time I knew it was the waters of the Ganges. The Buddha said, Great King, you have said that when you were 20, you had deteriorated from when you were 10, day by day, month by month, year by year, until you have reached 60. In thought after thought, there has been change. Yet, when you saw the Ganges River at the age of three, how was it different from when you were 13? Not how was the river different. How was the act of seeing different from the time you were three to the time you were 13. The king said, it was no different from when I was three. And even now that I'm 62, it is no different. 
the Buddha said, Now you are mournful that your hair is white and your face is wrinkled. In the same way that your face is definitely more wrinkled than it was in your youth, has the seeing with which you looked at the Ganges aged, so that it is old now, but was young when you looked at the river as a child in the past. The king said, no world-honored one. The seeing itself is not any older. So in other words, the body is older, and maybe even the eye is not as sharp as it was. The river may have changed, but it's not, he's not asking about the object, the organ of seeing, or the object that's being seen. He's asking about the actual conscious act of seeing, which is something else besides the object seen and the organ. Because in the, previously in the sutra, he's gone on and on about how the act of seeing is not about the object, it's not about the organ. Something else happens when the object and the organ meet. Something else happens, which we call perception, which arises because of consciousness. And this act of perception, has it aged? No, it hasn't aged at all. It's the same now as when I was three years old. The Buddha said, Great King, your face is in wrinkles, but the essential nature of your seeing has not yet wrinkled. What wrinkles is subject to change. What does not wrinkle does not change. What changes will become extinct, but what does not change is fundamentally free of both production and extinction. How can it be subject to birth and death? Furthermore, why bring up these other, anyway, these other teachings that I didn't tell you about? The king heard these words, believed them, and realized that when the life of this body is finished, there will be rebirth. He and the entire great assembly were greatly delighted at having obtained what they had never had before. Now, rebirth here doesn't mean that the king's body or personality or something like that is going to be reborn. It means that since this consciousness, the king all of a sudden appreciated that in every act of perception throughout his life, something that was never produced and never extinguished arises, consciousness itself arises and causes that perception to take place and that he was actually living that every moment of his life and that act of consciousness transcends his body and mind and that act of consciousness is continually transformed and never passes away. It's the ultimate durability of all phenomena. Once he could have faith in that, give his life to that and see that that was his life more than the organs of perception or the objects of perception, he realized that he didn't have to fear dying because that which he was, was most truly animating his body and mind in life was durable and eternal. So he knew that there would be rebirth and he had faith. So this is a very simple thing. It's so simple that we hardly notice. We're living and experiencing enlightenment moment after moment in all of our acts of body, speech, and mind. In other words, he, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. Whenever there's an act like that, which is every moment of our lives, 
we're participating in the boundless, limitless, never produced, never extinguished mind of God or Buddha or whatever you want to call it. These are fumbly, funny names because it has no name. We are, but we forgot. We're focused on this over here or that over there. We never got enough of that so far. We need a little more, and this is always not good enough. And that's our life. But in the midst of it all arises this ineffable, unnameable, ungraspable endlessness of consciousness, which was there before we were born and will persist on our demise. So when you sit in meditation and listen to sound, focus not on the organ or on the object of sound, become more and more quiet, let go more and more and more as much as you can of your preconceptions and enjoy the boundless consciousness that illuminates every act of perception in your life. Release yourself to it. Recognize that it is you and you are it most fundamentally. And then Whoever you are, whatever your problems are, it's not so bad. In fact, it's perfect. Because consciousness has decided to focus itself at this place and time as you. Somehow the world needs that. So you can say, oh good, I'm doing my work, being myself here. So please think about this when you practice meditation, however you practice, but I invite you to practice this listening uh, that I spoke about earlier. So I just wanted you to know about the Shurangama Sutra and all this <coughs> teaching about consciousness. very profound and hard to kind of grasp because that's the nature of it. It's ungraspable. So hopefully you have some feeling for it, and then afterward you'll go out and you'll think about it and you'll say, what did he say? <laughs> quite get what he said, you know. Because you can't get it, you know, really. That's the trouble. Right away we want to get it, so you want to get it, and right away make it into an object. See? That's the way our mind works. But it's not that. So when you try to get it and you forgot about it, just remember that wherever you are, whatever you are, that's where it is. It didn't go away. It's right there. So close that it's invisible. Okay, so anything to talk about? Yes? long pattern, almost 60 years, one, you know, a couple of shots, a few years of pattern. Um, and it was handed down to me, actually, so I see I did not <coughs> which is to be able to look at things in advance to figure out what to do is, so that certain unnamed bad things won't happen. And that practice, which in some ways 
has helped prevent things, it's also on some deep level prevented me from being alive. Mm. And um, there is in me now a yearning to allow, in quotation marks, bad things to happen so that I can know and familiarize and connect and be present to so that they won't bear those labels and so that ultimately I will not bear that label. And that's a piece mm-hmm. of what I get from it. Did you all hear what he said? Should I repeat it for the for the tape? Does it does it matter? Yeah. Uh, summarizing more or less that um, that you you said that you have uh, inherited, I guess, from your family and culture, a way of living that uh, has the capacity to anticipate the future, uh, to anticipate possible um, negative consequences of actions and to act in such a way as to avoid them. Uh, and you've lived that way for nearly 60 years and uh, it has avoided, it has been successful in that sense, it's avoided bad consequences, but you feel as if you know, on some level it's prevented you from really living. And so now you're almost thinking, let's have some bad things happen so that I can really kind of get over this. Yeah. Well. Uh, when it really comes down to it, uh, of course, bad things are guaranteed to happen. Right, there are very few guarantees. Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> Death and taxes, like they say, you know. So, uh, therefore, uh, uh, if one, so, so I, I don't think that there's anything, personally, uh, my opinion would be that, that, that there's nothing, I think it seems rational to me, any human being would, uh, unless they were somehow deeply um, confused inside themselves and, and self-destructive, and sort of, s- as many people are actually, unfortunately, and they're somehow seeking disaster. Short of that, any normal human being, I think, would certainly think, let's behave in such a way as to avert disaster if possible. Now, when you think that that is possible, that I can live in such a way to avert disaster, then you, you finally say, I haven't lived at all. When you understand that disaster is absolutely coming, that in fact every moment is a disaster, <laughs> when you really know that, then to simply con- conduct yourself in such a way as to prevent bad things from happening doesn't prevent you from being alive at all. It's just reasonable. So it's not as if, you know, you should now go do bungee jumping or, or maybe like hold up a 7-Eleven and see if you get arrested or something like that. I would not advise that. I don't think that'd be good. I think that, that actually it's not a matter of some sort of radical shift in the way you live your life. Although, I mean, sometimes people want to do that, make a radical shift, and maybe you should, you know. That's okay, but it isn't so much that. That isn't really the answer. The answer is really a proper... Uh, context for this, a proper understanding of what, you know, your life really is, and the recognition that in trying to control one's life, there's lots of fear and confusion and and ignorance, just ignorance of what's really going on. That's the problem. It isn't trying to avert disaster. I mean, I'm always trying to avert disaster myself, you know, it's just reasonable. Definitely, you know. So, uh, and that's, you know, so you're in the right place for that. (laughs) 
as be- if there could be any other place. Yeah, right, right, as if there could be. But to, but to practice Buddha Dharma, to practice Buddha Dharma is, you know, something that opens up the possibility of that, of that shift in understanding. Yeah. I guess the one word that I would want for myself is what you said, is that this is a disaster, and this is all right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. To accept the disaster of the present moment and rest in it and recognize its perfection. That's really fundamentally um, it. Yeah. Thank you for that thoughtful question. Yeah. Yes? Um, I mean, one thing is that if you're always planning to take care of the disasters in the future, you're not totally in the present. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I was wondering that if Ananda um, was always remembering, you know, remembering everything in the past word for word, that he wasn't like totally in the present either. Maybe that's why he wasn't enlightened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's good. Uh, a theory as to why Ananda wasn't enlightened. It was because he was uh, remembering. He his mind was cluttered with all these things from the past of the Buddha's words, and that is really it. You know, and that's what that's what it says in the, uh, some of the sutras that that's that is the problem. Ananda Ananda is what's clouding Ananda's mind is his sort of objective view of all these Buddhist teachings, which after all are like smoke, you know, they don't, you can't, they don't exist. In Zen, you know, the Buddha, the, the Zen of course has its own sort of apocryphal life of Buddha, but in, in, in the Zen tradition, The Buddha announces toward the end of his life, uh, you know, uh, I've been teaching all this time, and you know, of course, now we have to be, uh, you know, we have to be uh, very precise about this because, like, like you know, my life is a little bit uh, unhappy to me that I have to spend so much time working on my calendar. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing, but one of my jobs is like my calendar. Where am I going to be then? And what airplane? And what blah blah, etc. How you know? Constantly. So you might think, gee, the poor fella can never live in the present. He's always having to think about where he's going to be, you know, in June of 2003 or something. <laughs> However, when am I thinking about where I'm going to be in June of 2003? Now. So, the present moment consists of whatever the present moment brings. Planning for the future is happening in the present moment. And even though I might think, 2003, I'm going to be in Germany in the summer, I don't really know that. And I know I don't know it. I just know that I'm typing in my little computerized calendar this projected idea of that date 
and then I have certain whatever feelings are arising in relation to that now, and so forth and so on. That's my life at this moment. So that's why it's not as if we have a very crude idea usually of what the present moment is. The present moment is very complicated. It doesn't. It also doesn't violate the past. The past is also existing in the present moment. While I'm sitting there typing in my calendar, uh, June 2003, in my entire past is there, right with me, right then and there. My cultural background, my my parents, all the things I've done and haven't done, and all the consequences of that make up my mind that arises this moment that relates to that fact of whatever it is I'm doing produces feelings and thoughts and so forth. So the present moment is not some kind of hedonistic present moment, which eliminates the past and denies the future. It includes all that. So we have to remember that too. Anything else? Yes? I'm not quite sure how to, how to phrase this, but the story of when the prostitute fell in love with Ananda, mm-hmm. and you so beautifully brought in how the woman's love transformed yes, her. Yes, yes. Um, I'm just wondering, because I look at who everybody represents and the beauty of Ananda and him being mm-hmm. I'm wondering, the spell comes from her mother. I'm wondering what the spell is, where the spell really comes from. From in our in our lives, who who cast the spell? Well, uh, who cast the spell uh, of Matangi's mother uh, causing Ananda's trouble? Well, uh, in the sutras, uh, the Buddha basically always says, "From beginningless time, it has been the case that." Yeah. So, uh, so, and and there's a long section in the uh, Shurangama Sutra that purports to explain the ultimate origins of all this. And it basically it says something like, and it's quite hard to understand. And here, in some a subtle matter like this, we're sort of operating against the fact that it's translated from another language and hard to understand the terminology. But something like this that. The world and our minds are already, from the first, have this nature, a luminous nature of enlightenment, as I said in the beginning. A nature of enlightenment that um, is beyond uh, light and darkness, good and bad and so forth. It's sort of ineffably so. Somehow, in the deepest, immense past, a conceptualization of enlightenment, that it was bright, that it was something to be experienced, arose out of the perfection of undifferentiated, bright enlightenment. And that little tiny speck of conceptualization created a gap within enlightenment that constellated then an object. And as soon as there was a gap between an object and a perception, a a, a perceiver and an object, in other words, two 
as soon as the, there was a consciousness divides into an object and, and a subject, as soon as that division takes place on the most subtle lever, level, kaboom, all of reality follows, one confusion after another from beginningless time until we end up where we are today, you know, in the middle of our own confused lives, and, and, and goodness knows, I'm sure that whatever confusion anybody has in this room, it's peanuts compared to the confusion of the world and all the tragedy that goes on while we're sitting here enjoying the Dharma. Innumerable tragedies are taking place elsewhere in the world because of human confusion. I mean, real stuff, starvation, child, uh, children being abused, death, destruction of all kinds, you know, violence is going on because of all this. So, and this is not that dissimilar, actually, from the physics theory of the great, the Big Bang, you know, where somehow there was a hair's breadth gap, somehow, and then kaboom, everything, all of a sudden, like in the, you know, within a second, the whole world gets constellated from that. And nobody can say, like they can explain the Big Bang, they can say what happened in the first one millionth of a second after the Big Bang and all this, there's a beautiful descriptions of what happens. You know, the first two or three seconds after the Big Bang, enorm- more changes happen in that two or three seconds than has happened in the gazillion years since then. And they know about that. But nobody can say what happened before that. Because there was no before that. The, the, the idea of before and after makes no sense at that point. So that's pretty much the same thing that, that the Buddha says. So... It's not your fault. <laughs> yeah, it's not your fault. It's not my fault either. It's nobody's fault. It just, that's the way it had to be. You know? So enlightenment is just crossing that gap somehow. Yeah. That's what our practice is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The recognition that, that there is no gap. Yeah. That the gap is a gap of conceptualization. That there actually is no gap. Yeah. Yeah, we're walking around now in an identical state that we were in before the Big Bang. It's just that we're projecting something else, and that's the source of all of our problems. When we really come to see that, we're enlightened. We're just like the Buddha. Come to know it, yeah. Not see, see it implies that there's something we're seeing, right? Come to be that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, in the delight of the um, <coughs> studies that have been going on in neuroscience as to the role of or like how spirituality is um, where it is expressed in in the brain. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? I I <coughs> think of of. Uh, Buddhism in terms of being um, great psychology, I mean, uh-huh. great scientific psychology, and now <coughs> Western psychology studies, psychological studies have, have gone into the, uh, if you will, the material basis of mm-hmm. uh, religion or, mm-hmm. or religious capabilities, and also the fact that or it has been my experience that there are some people who seem to have been born with this desire or this this need 
to have some kind of spiritual expression. There are other people who just couldn't care less. Mm -hmm. So do you have uh, any thoughts on... Well, to summarize for the uh, rest of everybody and for the... um, uh, for posterity here that's entering into our lives through the tape. Um, you're, she's asking about uh, neuroscience and the, the recent uh, discoveries about the, the seat of, the physical seat of religious experience and religious need and how Buddhism seems to very much uh, be in accord with all that and, and there are some people who seem to be born with spiritual yearnings and needs and others who seem much less inclined that way. And what do I think about all that? Well, uh, I'm not, not too knowledgeable about it. I, uh, I just a tiny little bit have uh, appreciated it, uh, the studies, uh, new studies, of science of the brain. The, the one thing that I do know about it is that um, if we're talking about a sort of a given quantity of possible information to be discovered about the brain and, and human consciousness, that uh, there's been a burgeoning of information in the last, you know, because of technology in the last 10 or 15 years, huge burgeoning of information, but the sum total of that information compared to the possible information that there could be is minuscule, minuscule, less than a tenth of a percent of what needs to be known before any kind of reasonable uh, speculations could be made. So we're really operating in the dark. We really don't understand much about it. And the truth is that uh, I I feel it's a bit like the Big Bang. You know, we can we can say many things, but when it really comes down to it, you know, why did the Big Bang happen and what happened before the Big Bang? I think that's, that's the limit of objective knowledge. And I think similarly, in studying the brain, one comes to a limit of objective knowledge. Uh, from my own point of view, uh, I do feel that those brain studies indicate, I mean, it's a very, very, very different view of spirituality and spiritual experience than the one that we had early in the last century when uh, Freud and others pointed out that, that religion was actually a regressive childhood confusion. And, and Marx also pointed out that not only that, but it was the, the, the um, trick of the ruling classes to make sure everybody kept uh, paying attention to their knitting and didn't overthrow the bosses. So pretty much most people thought that that's what religion was through the time, you know, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It pretty much in the Western world, that was the kind of view of religion more or less. And it was very a very unpopular thing to be a religious person. You felt like, I'm struggling to find a way to make this seem real. You know? Now, though, uh, I think those analyses have proven to be uh, fairly superficial. And it does seem very much as if uh, it is a human need to understand and uh, seek for meaning in a wider sense, meaning that that includes living and dying. That just to have, like I was saying in the very beginning, just to have a sense of the meaning of our lives only operating uh, within the social and personal spheres is insufficient for fundamental human happiness. 
and I think this is what psychologists are finding out, that there are, uh, there are aspects of the human heart, and, and this is true for everybody, as you point out, that there are some people who, for one reason or another, are more in touch with it consciously than others. I believe that it's true for every single human being. The religious impulse, the religious need, is there for every single human being, whether or not they have access to it. And that for, for human wholeness and happiness, we have to have some sense of meaning beyond just me. Now that doesn't mean that everybody has to be a Buddhist or some other re you know, religion. Spirituality can be expressed in many, many ways. But somehow, I think, to, to seek that dimension and come into touch with it in our lives is a necessity, I think, for real um, mental health and a sense of, you know, wholeness in a human life. And, and you're right about psychology. Um, the Buddha was really a great psychologist, maybe the greatest psychologist of all time. But his psychology didn't only include uh, the nature of, of the person. It showed, as I was saying you know, in the beginning, that the person is contextualized in a larger metaphysical space and that it's no good to look at the person without including that metaphysical space, because if you, if you do, the person will, you know, just the person alone, ripped out of that context, is always going to be lacking. And so, uh, insofar as Western psychology doesn't do that, you know, in other words, doesn't include the metaphysical surround, it's, it's limited. But of course, a lot of Western psychology now is, is including that dimension as well. Well, of course, in Buddhist terms, there is no God. No, but, right. but yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. In the West, in the West, that's the way. That's the way that metaphysical surround has been articulated. And I think Freud actually was was right that that there were there was a lot of confusion in the in the twentieth in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. There was a lot of confusion in Western Western culture because the language for describing that metaphysical surround was in terms of was parental language and authority and so forth. I personally feel like that for the last couple of hundred years there's been a tremendous misperception of that language. But it did create a lot of confusion so that people were projecting their own, mostly people got, basically what happened is people kind of got mad at God because they got mixed up between God and their father or something. You know what I mean? And then it's easy to reject the whole thing. But I think the language of God is just a, it's just a form of language that was characteristic of the times in which it was created. For a lot of people, I think Buddhism is um, very useful because exactly because it avoids that kind of language and imagery, we can, uh, you know, sort of not be clouded by all of that. However, insofar as we have those issues, we do have to, we can't avoid them, you know, just by becoming Buddhist, therefore, you know, all that goes away. Uh, maybe we have to go to our psychotherapist and sort of figure out, you know, how we feel about our family background and so on. But at least we don't have to complicate it with God, you know. So it makes it easier, I suppose. But I'm, as you saw from my reading of Boer, I'm a great fan of God. I'm, I'm on God's side. <laughs> well, uh, well, uh, it actually isn't quite the case that Buddhism says that God doesn't exist. Buddhism just says um, 
that deposit the absolute existence of a separate being called God is obviously foolishness. But uh, to, uh, to um, say that God also does not exist is also an exaggeration. The Buddha was classically an agnostic on the uh, issue of God. And if you really think about uh, later forms of Buddhism, uh, I, I think the truth is that although on a doctrinal level uh, Buddhism is defined by not being theistic, if you really think about Buddha nature and all these other things that is, are spoken of in Buddhism, it's very difficult to find any actual distinction between that and certain kinds of conceptions of God in the Western tradition. Of course, what is God in the Western tradition? Well, you could study that from today until the end of your life and you'll never come to the end of it because there's a gazillion different conceptions of God and books written about it and contemplations of it and so forth. So. The idea that God is this or God is that is nonsense, you know. God is a, what God is, is a human word that has stood for something that human beings will never understand, that's been a focal point for conversation for some thousands of years. That's what God is. So, you know, does God exist? I mean, what are we talking about? Yes. We're all, uh, oh, maybe last question with a very brief answer, because it's after 11. We know there's a lot of suffering in the world, both material and, and psychological, and, and we see with the Buddhists, and we, we have you know, such discussions on that. You talked about our privilege from being able to study and to meditate here in Marin County, for example, and our responsibility to others. When, can you give a really brief <laughs> uh, expansion of that? So I, the point that I made earlier about our privilege and our responsibility, can I make a brief expansion of that? Well, briefly, um, to every single day cultivate the thought and hold in your heart the thought that your life is not your own, not to be lived for your own benefit only. You have to find a way to open your life and share it with others, to benefit others. To cultivate that thought every day and recognize that that is really the truth, and that your own personal happiness depends on your recognition of that. And then after that, you figure out how to do that. And everybody's different, you know. There's no formula for that. Everybody's different. There isn't, and it isn't that we have to run around and be do-gooders. It's good to do good. So it's not that there's something wrong with that. But it's not that we all have to sort of dr be driven by the idea of doing good. It's that we have to hold that thought and live our life moment by moment based on that thought. And then we find naturally ways to do good. So that's, uh, we could go on and it's kind of fun. I wish that I could, uh, but we should end. And uh, I just want to say thank you very much for your attentiveness. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.